They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling. And now, they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. This is the two-man power trip of wrestling brought to you and powered by Meowbox. Meowbox is a cat subscription box service full of surprises delivered to your door every month. And stay tuned for a special offer for our listeners, courtesy Meowbox, at the end of this episode, or excuse me, the intro to this episode. And with that being said, my name is Chad, and as always, I am joined by my tag team partner, Primetime, John Paz. John, how are you this evening? Hey, yo. I'm doing pretty damn good. How you doing, Chad? I'm doing great, and tag teams is the theme of this episode. You're my tag team partner. The first man we have on is an author who has a book titled The Tag Teams, and our feature guest is a member of one of the greatest tag teams in the history of pro wrestling, and that author is Greg Oliver, and that guest is Robert Gibson of the Rock and Roll Express. But first, let's get to Greg Oliver. Now, Greg Oliver, myself, and you have a very, very long history, and maybe just from our end, because uh, of a funny story that we get to tell about meeting him in 2004 at a wrestling convention when he was promoting one of his uh, first books that really hit it big. Uh, of course, he's got so many titles that you could look into, and it's the heels, and as I mentioned, the tag teams, and now he's got some great books about uh, hockey, including one that he wrote with his son, but, you know, let's just talk briefly before we throw it to the interview about our funny little interaction with Greg Oliver. Yeah, you know, it's funny. He he didn't remember us per se, but he remembers, every, you know, everything about that day. Obviously, we're going to remember a little bit more, but because of his... Uh, interactions with the missing link and he actually knows the missing link and you'll hear why he knows him so well um or did know him so well um but such an interesting day for us all encompassing just an awesome story but we knew him quite well because of the an autograph sign that we all attended featuring the missing link virgil of all people ted dibiase and dr d david schultz they were the main guys there and then obviously greg oliver was there as well and he hosted a Q&A that day, and uh, we've got uh, up close and personal, and we got to meet him, and um, even uh, you got a, the uh, the tag team book, which is uh, one of the greatest wrestling books you can read out there. I mean, uh, he's got a ton of great books, but that book in particular uh, really sticks out to me and really stick out to me, and we do talk about it, and uh, and we do uh, talk about some uh, some tag teams. Yeah, we definitely talk tag teams. And, of course, you know Greg Oliver. Even if you don't know the name right off the top of your head, you've been somehow you've stumbled onto Slam Wrestling. And Slam Wrestling has been around forever. I got the Internet for the first time in 1997, and I remember Slam Wrestling as being one of the first sites that I saw because, like he said, you get a priority in the search engines when you've been around forever. And Slam Wrestling, whether you look up something, it always pops up as a top choice. And he's the man behind Slam Wrestling. He's... He, he's always had such a keen eye when it comes to trends in pro wrestling. He's had some great relationships with pro wrestlers. And, you know, with his uh, books that he has out, like we keep putting over the tag teams, and I will put it over. I could not give that book to you faster to say, listen, you got to read this. There's going to be guys, you're not even believe some of these guys were in teams and territories that we probably didn't hear of, you know, to that point. And it's just, uh, he's such a great writer, and he tells great, great stories. And I don't want to. I don't want to talk about it anymore. I want you to listen to him. So please enjoy Greg Oliver. Enjoy our chat with him. Enjoy our story with him. When we come back, we're going to get into it with John about Robert Gibson. But please enjoy Greg Oliver.
And joining us on the line tonight is a good friend of the professional wrestling business. He is the man behind Slam Wrestling, and he's also a writer, an editor, a producer, and of course, you should forget a stay-at-home dad. His latest books include Don't Call Me Goon, The Goaltender's Union, written in black and blue and duck with the puck, but also the great pro wrestling books, such as the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, Heroes and Icons, uh, the Tag Teams, the Canadians, the Heels, as well as Benoit. Uh, Greg Oliver, thank you so much for joining the Two-Man Power Chip of Wrestling. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show, guys. Oh, it's our pleasure. Now, I personally, uh, my favorite book of yours is the Tag Teams, and uh, my tag team partner can attest to that because uh, once I finished it, I handed it right over to him and uh, said, you have to read this uh, cover to cover because it was fantastic. But if you could, uh, what's been your favorite wrestling book to uh, write about so far? Hmm, that's a bit tricky. Uh, they're all near and dear to my heart in a way, right? Uh, I mean, the fact is that the Canadians was the first one, and nothing will ever, it's like your first child, right? Nothing will ever compare. <laughs> hmm. And and that's both good and bad. Um, so from that perspective, it's probably the Canadians. It's the one that I got the most feedback immediately from the guys on. Um, you know, I got a message once from um, Killer Kowalski, you know, Greg, thanks for putting me over. Uh, like it's just a one, wonderful memory. Um, and uh, but as far as quality of the work goes, the the most recent wrestling one, Heroes and uh, Heroes and Icons, um, there's nothing as good as that book out there on the market. And I'll stand by that comment. Um, nobody's put that much work into that many different people as Steve and I did with uh, with a good uh, helping with uh, Mike Mooneyham. Yeah, your books are so detailed, and they just cover so much, and they really are a history lesson, and also serve as almost an encyclopedia go-to for that really hardcore fan, and uh, again, I hate to reference my, you know, my favorite book being the tag teams, but I learned stuff from your book that I did not know about guys who either were tag team partners or territories that a tag team had been in, uh, you know, that I didn't know, but what, what kind of uh, you know, research goes into, you know, the typical wrestling book for you. How do you go about your process in finding out your information? Well, so much of it is just accumulation. Uh, there's really no other way to describe it. I mean, the the Canadian's book, when it came out, I, I used to joke that it was, how long did it take? Because that's a pretty common question. And I would say 17 years, because it was an accumulation of all the knowledge that I'd gathered over the years, all the people I'd interviewed years before that weren't around anymore. Um, so it was the same. I mean, the, the Canadians helped to build the tag teams and all the stuff we've done at Slam Wrestling helped do that as well. So there were guys that I interviewed for that project that maybe weren't around anymore or maybe that was my chance to follow up on with them or whatever it is. Uh, there's lots of different ways to go about it. Um, it's almost quaint looking back at, you know, the Internet back when tag teams came out, which was 2005. And... Um, you know, how simple the, or how hard the research was in some ways. You know, you had to leave the house and go to the library mm-hmm. and all that stuff. And and the way it's progressed today, um, it's a, it's a actually a welcome respite to go down to the library and, and do some research for a newspaper that's not available online. Uh, naturally, I have to pay for some of that services, but it's worth it. I mean, that's it's a business expense as far as I'm concerned. And uh, so I think that's probably what's changed the most. I mean, the guys still like to talk, but finding the answer research and being able to confirm, you know, dates and addresses and all that kind of stuff electronically sure helped a ton uh, being able to hunt people down. Now, with the Canadians book, obviously you being a Canadian, and there's a very, very famous family that is Canadian, and that is the Hart family. But when I was reading um, a little bit of the book, I noticed that Bret Hart, one of the greatest wrestlers you know, of all time, obviously, he isn't necessarily the number one Canadian wrestler of all time. Can you just talk about the lineage of wrestling in Canada? Well, if you ask Bret, I'm sure he'd say he was. But that that's neither <laughs> here nor there. I mean, it, and again, this is, you know, my opinion as you work on something and uh, you learn a lot. And, and the fact is, a lot like you had... Um, Gorgeous George in the U.S. at the height of, you know, when television started. And he used to brag about how many televisions he sold. And in Canada, our equivalent was, uh, you know, Whipper Billy Watson. And so he, and, and <laughs> I don't know if that 
uh, displays the difference between the U.S. and Canada more than anything else. I mean, you guys had a villain, bleach blonde, you know, was condescending to everybody, and we had a, a good guy who, you know, uh, kissed babies and ran a safety club that was our uh, national hero. And, and he was just that important. Um, that equivalent in Quebec, which, as everybody should know, is really its own little world, um, they had Yvon Robert, which was, you know, like I said, the equivalent of uh, Whipper Watson. Uh, beyond that, I mean, you're talking guys like, you know, Mad Dog of Shaw and Killer Kowalski and Abdullah the Butcher and Roddy Piper that all made international names for themselves. And, it, you know, rankings are subjective, and, and they always will be. And that's part of the fun of doing this job. The uh, the one thing we did set out when we did all these books is that we said if somebody's actively wrestling, we can't rank them in our top 20. And so that affected some of the guys for sure. Uh, would Edge maybe be in that top 20 now? Maybe. You know, uh, certainly uh, tag teams, you'd have to look at the Dudleys maybe being in the top 20, but they're not in there because they weren't active at the time, or they were active at the time. John Cena would certainly be in our top 10 baby faces, I think, in the Heroes and Icons book. Yeah, definitely. But I feel like that's the most fun part of these books is that it is subjective. That, you know, I can look at it and be like, oh, well, I think, you know, Bret Hart is, should be number one or number two. But then when you read about all these other guys and their, their history and their lineage, you're almost like, Wow, that's great. Those guys do deserve those spots. It's it's also like a great learning tool as well as just wanting to know which guy is ranked in which position. I appreciate that. No, but I mean that's the goal. We all have more to learn. I don't know everything. Bret Hart doesn't know everything. You know, Roddy Piper doesn't know everything. It, it, you got to learn about the past, and it's hard to compare eras. But the fact is that if everybody in the country knew your name, and there was no television. You're a pretty big deal. That's you know we we got a lot of people wondering why Jim Londis was the number one babyface of all time in Heroes and Icons. Well, there will never ever be another star as great as Jim Londis was. That you know he was known worldwide and was such a big deal. Um, and this is pre-television. It's hard for us to imagine. It's it's like he was the equivalent of a of a Babe Ruth uh, or a Jack Dempsey at the time. And and. In our, in our day and age where we're inundated with media, it's hard for us to have that kind of perspective that people like that existed back then. Now, it's true that he was selling out shows during the Depression when people literally had no money to spend. He was still selling out shows? Well, maybe not selling out isn't the right word, but known. And, and you know, he had you know wrestled before 100,000 people in Greece. Uh, you know, he was just such an important figure in the history of wrestling um, because... He transcended the sport, and he, he helped marry it up from what it had been the real shooter style to being a lot more of the showman style, and that led to modern pro wrestling in many ways, what it is today. Now, with the, the tag team books, there's one tag team that was very highly ranked that I wasn't even uh, aware of until I read the history of them and the lineage of them, that they were a very big time. It was the Kangaroos. Now, were they a very, very popular, you know, tag team in their heyday? Oh, absolutely. But it, it's more than just popularity. It's also their influence. And um, like anything, there had to be an, a champion, somebody that was out there sort of showing how it was done. And the Kangaroos were really that team at the time that were doing innovative tag team moves and starting to really show that this could be a different uh, way to uh, bring fans into the arenas, and they're they're ranked high number one for a reason, and that that's their influence. And without the Kangaroos and what they did in the 50s, there wouldn't be Road Warriors, there wouldn't be British Bulldogs, there wouldn't be Fabulous Freebirds, uh, and they were all great teams in their own right. But you know, there, there's often an influence, and again, probably the same reason Jim Laundress got ranked higher. Without him, there is no John Cena. Without the Fabulous Kangaroos, there is no uh, primetime players. Woohoo! <laughs> now, with one book in particular, obviously it's different than all the rest because the circumstances of what happened with him and his family, but one book that was very interesting, you, you delve in there, is the Benoit book, uh, Chris Benoit. What was it like writing that book? Uh, it was um, surprisingly uh exhausting in some ways um for one thing my own son was born uh during while well, he was very young during the process he he came along in november 2006 
And so uh, all the Benoit stuff went down in June 2007. So here I am writing this book about a guy who killed his kid, uh, you know, while my my little tiny baby is beside me on the floor. So that's very emotional. I can remember being on a TV interview and, and somebody asked about that, and I just said, you just can't imagine somebody taking the, you know, taking the life of your own child. So from that perspective, it was incredibly trying. Um, but I, I knew Chris a little bit. I'd, I'd met him once or twice, and certainly we'd done interviews over the years. And, um, you know, I had personal emails from him uh, talking about, you know, his own issues that he was going through um, after Eddie died, Eddie Guerrero died. So I was in a very interesting place in the, at that point and, and dealing with all that um, very unique stuff. There's no other way to put it. I mean, nobody else had those had those emails. Um, I was fortunate to work with three other great guys that brought different things to the project. Steve Johnson's been a friend and a mentor for many years now. We did the, um, four different books together, and then uh, Heath McCoy is a great writer from Calgary, and he, you know, wrote about the the you know Stampede Wrestling side of Chris Benoit, and then we had. Uh, Irv Muchnick, who loves to stir it up, and um, he's based down in California, and he did a an interesting essay that's designed to uh, make you think about things. Uh, so, yeah, it was a great culmination of things, but we did have to rush to get it done. It was by far the quickest project I've ever done. Uh, in this case, uh, you know, we had the contract within probably a week or two of, of the incident, and the book was on shelves by September and October. So it was a lot of work in a short amount of time, um, I do remember insisting that there be a, a piece on Nancy, though. Um, and I, I have had a few people over the years say that they were grateful there was something in there about her, too. Right, yep. That is, that's very good. And with Benoit, the crazy thing is, if, you know, that that crazy night never happened, we're looking back at him as one of the greatest wrestlers ever, certainly one of the greatest wrestlers to come out of Canada, wouldn't you say? Absolutely, yeah. No, it is uh, it is unfortunate the way... Uh, memories get colored, and that's that's natural. I mean, nobody thinks of Pete Rose the same anymore. He was a great player, but you know what? He shot himself in the foot so many times. You know, how can you have any sympathy for him? Now, I'm not trying to equate the two crimes as being anywhere close to the same, but just the fact that in our minds, uh, somebody is never the same, and that's yep. certainly the case with Benoit. No, no amount of time is going to forgive those deeds. Yep, definitely. Now, if I could ask you about you yourself, who would you say would be an influence on you where, you know, they were your favorite wrestler maybe growing up, or maybe they're just your favorite wrestler of all time, or maybe it's a couple wrestlers? Oh, wrestlers, wrestlers. Well, I mean, I was in the Bret Hart fan club. Uh, you know, that was certainly uh, influential. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, the guys that were most important to my career were, were local guys or Canadian guys that, um, you know, became friends over the years and, and almost spoke up for me. You know, like whether it's Ricky Johnson, who was the, uh, um, he's the uncle of The Rock. So Rocky Johnson's brother uh, lives in Toronto. He was one of those first guys that gives you the insight and lets you go into the dressing room when you're just a punk kid. And and those kind of people are so important to your life. Um, and looking back, it's been nice to be able to say thank you to some of them. Yeah, definitely. No doubt about that. And I love Bret Hart myself. I'm a huge, huge Bret Hart fan. And I think that um, he did a lot for Canada, especially during that crazy, crazy feud. But what was it like in Canada during like the 1997 Canada versus USA rivalry? Well, it, w- it was great fun, uh, simply because you had Canada feeling like we had something special. And we did. And so you're able to really um, celebrate Brett and feel like we had something on those U.S. Uh, folks that always, you know, the U.S. always sort of looks at Canada as a little sister or something, right? It looks like we're not the, the equivalent of, of what the U.S. is. And so this was our way to sort of look and say, look, Brett Hart's on top. He's the greatest in the world. And uh, you guys have to respect us now. And, and there, was a, there was an aspect of that. Um, and certainly... There was some pride too when he, you know, got the job to go to WCW. It felt like, you know, that was the right thing to do. Um, you know, go to the bigger company, become a bigger star. It didn't work out that way, but that's life, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So, so true. And 
I actually have a, a unique, actually, my Chad as well, um, we were both there, is a unique experience with you. I don't know if you will actually remember this or not. It was a fan slam event. I want to say it was 2003, 2004. I don't know. It was about 10 or, 10 or 12 years ago, and uh, it was a huge uh, snowstorm. Oh, Tottawa, New Jersey. Yes, totally killed it because because uh, of the storm. There wasn't that many people there, but you actually hosted the Q&A with uh, Ted DiBiase, Virgil, Dr. D, David Schultz, and The Missing Link. You, uh, I guess you do remember that day. Oh, yeah, yeah, no. Well, my, my wife wrote Dewey's book, The Missing Link's book. And so Dewey was near and dear to uh, to our hearts. He was nuts. He was very difficult to deal with. Um, all kinds of things that, uh, but you know, in the end, they're they're memories, right? And they're, you, I was glad that he was a part of our life. He he certainly gave us a few uh, headaches and uh, things you didn't understand. I mean, Meredith, uh, she traveled down once with him to um, a fan fest down in Dallas, and like, you know, before getting on the plane, he ate a bucket of chicken. And so he was all dehydrated and nearly like passed out on the plane because you know you 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 dry up on those planes, right? Like it's just so bizarre these little memories you have of these guys. And you're right, uh, Ottawa, New Jersey was a lot of fun. Uh, Bill After wasn't there, and so I got the host. Uh, and yet I've become good friends with Bill, and I I helped him get his book together. So his book's coming out this fall. And uh, while my name's not on the cover, I know I'm hugely responsible for kicking his butt to get it finished, and I helped him edit it all. So um, there's a little bit of me that appreciates that part too. It's 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 I do enjoy being an editor, and that's why Slam Wrestling's existed for so long uh, through all those headaches too. It's just it's something I do enjoy working with people and helping them become better writers. Yeah, no doubt, and that that Q and A was actually pretty fun because uh, we got to ask a bunch of questions, and uh, it was a cool little thing, but. If I could talk about uh, slam wrestling for a second, how do you enjoy doing slam wrestling? You said, I guess, enjoy that part of the business, but do you still enjoy, you know, modern wrestling and covering it? Not really. Uh, no, I, again, it's it's different now. My son's eight, and he enjoys wrestling. So, you know, you enjoy it a little bit more vicariously through him. Um, do I sit and watch the shows? Not really. But, you know, if the opportunity's there and I can go watch it, um, then I will. Uh we're probably going to go see Tommy Dreamer's. Well, we are going to see Tommy Dreamer's House of Hardcore uh, in Toronto on Saturday night. You know, a lot of them are guys I've known for a few years, and Tracy Brooks is is retiring, and I've known her forever. Um, so it's kind of nice to be able to go and and say thanks for that. But I mean, he's a fan of Tommy Dreamer for some reason because of an old WWE game we have on the Wii. Like he wants to <laughs> wants to meet Tommy Dreamer. So I mean. And I talked to Rhino about this the other, like last week too. It's like you can't really understand how these kids get to be fans sometimes, um, but they do. And so all you can do is appreciate it. Uh, the way I got into wrestling was Hulkamania, so it's different for you. It's different for somebody else, and and so what? It's just a great sport. Let's just enjoy it, right? And and slam wrestling allows me to let others do a lot of that enjoyment, a lot of that. Um, they're the ones that still love watching the shows, and that's fine because I don't think I could do it. If I had to watch the shows every week, I don't think I'd be still writing about pro wrestling. But I love interviewing people. I love writing. So those two things have combined nicely with slime wrestling. Nice. And as we uh, as we end up uh, winding down here, uh, talk about another one of your passions, and that is hockey. And you have a lot of very awesome hockey books uh, that are out there. And the one that really caught my attention was uh, the duck with the puck, and it was a nice little story that you uh, you put together there with your son. Uh, but tell us about the duck with the puck and how that came about, because that is very uh, very cool and unique. Well, it it goes back to you know things like Ottawa, New Jersey, which was one of the first fan fests I went to. And and when you go, you bring in your books and you try different other things that you can sell. Whether I've done uh, vintage AWA um, iron-ons that uh, from the 70s, I've sold those at shows. I still have some. Um, you know, you try selling other people's books, uh, other ECW press books or whatever. And, and, and so in the end, you know, my son is growing up and now he comes to the shows with me and it's like, well, why don't we do something together? And so we came up with a, a book about a hockey loving duck. Can't wait for the ice to freeze so we can get out there and be a star on the ice. Uh, and it really was a fun project to work on together. I mean, we, we wrote it together. There's certainly a story. It's based on his favorite stuffed animal, um, but we sat down with the artist, you know, electronically. She's in California, and we had to um, go through the pictures and 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 work on it together. It's like, well, look, 
the duck's holding the puck, the stick wrong. Oh, it's like, of course. Well, Annette Ballesteri, the great artist who did it, I mean, she's from California, doesn't play hockey. So we have to teach her. It's not like a golf club. You've got to hold the, the stick a little differently. Uh, so that was a great project to work on, and we've got some good praise, and uh, we sold some books. And, and when we're at these shows, he gets to be his little huckster and try and go out there and sell some books. Uh, so that at my book launch, I think he sold 11 of his books. So, you know, it's a good thing for a kid to do, and it's a wonderful thing to be a part of. And all, all the, that book and all the others are available at uh, oliverbooks.ca. Now the other one that I really uh, you know caught my eye was the goaltenders union and it kind of you know the goal the goalie see now John and I were both from the Northeast and hockey is big but you know sometimes it takes a backseat to you know the Yankees and the Mets and the Giants and the Knicks so with the Rangers Devils Islanders we have all that the the goaltender is always you know he's always the star it's always the uh, the guy who's going to get the headlines uh, you know when you're looking at a Henrik Lundqvist or a Mike Richter. Uh, but or Martin Brodeur, how can we forget him? But uh, tell us about your experience as a hockey fan, and uh, maybe who were some of your favorite players growing up, and maybe some of your favorite players to write about. Uh, yeah, it's it's you talk about marking out. I mean, you know, I, my my son's teacher was jealous because I took him out of school one day to go hang out with Bobby Orr. You know, it, huh. it's you know these are extra special memories that uh, that I've been lucky to have, and and. I'm still a long way from meeting all the players that I loved growing up, like Aguila Fleur, Steve Shutt, and, and the Montreal Canadiens of the the 19, uh, late 1970s. Uh, but, you know, you still, you get these wonderful memories. And, and, like, even today, talking to a couple of guys, Emile Francis, you know, was the cat. And he ran the New York Rangers for, like, I think 12 or 16 years, a long time. And I was talking to him for a while today. And, and it's just, it's, the goaltending union is is very much a reality. I mean, these guys look out for each other. They certainly uh, understand each other far better than anybody else does. And the fact that they stand in you know net and and have you know <laughs> missiles fired at them and try to stay sane is is quite remarkable. And that's they're they're unique characters for sure. Yeah, without a doubt. And like you said, your your website is Oliver Books. .ca. There's all the information about the books there and, and where you can get it. But please uh, tell the, the fine folks who listen to the two-man power trip of wrestling just where they can find everything there is about Greg Oliver. Well, oliverbooks.ca has tons of stuff for sure, but uh, Slam Wrestling is, is certainly uh, uh, my home away from home and I've uh, been doing that. Oh, man, it's, it's, we're coming up on, what, 18 years now. It's quite insane uh, the amount we've been doing, uh, and and the nice thing is our stuff's all archived, and Google loves us, so chances mm-hmm. are a lot of things will come up over the years because Google does respect their algorithms respect the idea that uh, you know if you've been around a long time you you've earned it, um, and so you just go to slam.ca, click on the wrestling link, uh, or you can just Google Slam Wrestling. You'll find us easy enough. And we are back on the two-man power trip of wrestling, powered by Meow Box. And, John, the time has come for the other half of the Rock and Roll Express, Robert Gibson, to join the program. It was a fun chat. I think some of my greatest recollections of it will be what what it took to get synced up with him. Uh, But we won't get into that story. That will just be a chuckle between... Uh, you and I, but we had we had Ricky Morton on very early in our time together, and uh, I think Robert filled in a couple of the gaps, but uh, definitely another fun, you know, fun one in the books, and Robert Gibson, another fantastic old-school mind for the business that really, he just, he's such a great personality, and so, so awesome to talk to one of these, you know, legendary teams like the Rock and Roll Express. Yeah, when we started doing this, it was funny. Because when you want to interview certain guys, you know, like people would think of, you know, whoever's on their list of guys that they always want to talk to. But with us, it was interesting. We, we kept saying, the Rock and Roll Express, that's such an interesting career. And especially coming as we just watched their documentary that Michael Elliott made, it was just like, oh, man, we really want to talk to these guys one-on-one. So when we got Ricky Morton, that was awesome. So it was like, man, we got to get Robert Gibson. And obviously, like you just said, I'm not going to go into it, but uh, it took some time to get Robert Gibson um, on on the phone. So uh, it was just like we got we got to be able to talk to these guys. We love the Rock and Roll Express. I mean, Jesus, the Mid-Atlantic, Mid-South, 
South, NWA, Smoky Mountain, WWF, WCW. goes on and on. I mean, these guys have wrestled everywhere. They've wrestled over big teams. They've had awesome feuds. The versus the Midnight Express might be the greatest tag team feud ever, period. I mean, they just put on amazing matches. Even if you pop, you know, pop them in today, they're better than the tag matches you'll see out there. So a lot of great stuff from Gibson about his career. And it was awesome to just stay, you know, on a little list there. It's like Ricky Morton, check. Robert Gibson, check. We got to finally interview both of the Rock and Roll Express. Without a doubt. And we implore you to go check out the Ricky Morton episode. And if you're a fan of tag teams like John and myself, we are huge fans of tag teams. Go find, go play a game. Piece together the other teams that we've had on this show, when you go through the iTunes listing and then you listen to the show and you leave us a glowing review, but I'm going to leave that to John to tell you all about that. And a little bit before we throw it to Robert Gibson, what is your favorite Rock and Roll Express match? Hmm. Man, that is a rough one. Honestly, there might be too many to name. I know the uh, the scaffold matches aren't, you know, that good as they as even Robert Gibson gets into it. It's not it's it's hard to have a scaffold match be good. But they're they're so memorable because it's such like a like a sight to behold. Like, oh my God, especially in the the eighties, like, oh my God, having a scaffold match. I think basically you could pick any match that they've ever had um against the Midnight Express and it could be one of my favorite matches. I mean some of their matches in the NWA um with the Crockett's is just amazing. And then even go back to uh, their whole series that they had in Mid-South. It was just some awesome, awesome matches. And then another tag team that just popped in my head because we just had on uh, Dr. Tom. But there's so many matches that they had against uh, the Heavenly Bodies in Smoky Mountain, uh, even in WWF and even in WCW, that really stick out to me. But the Rock and Express is just one of those teams. They're so damn good. And they have wrestled so many good teams, had so many good matches. I don't even know if I can even narrow it down to uh, to five. But if I had to pick one feud, I would say just watch any of the Midnight Express matches. They're amazing. Completely agree. And lest we forget the mania that they caused wherever they went. And we're talking shutting down amusement parks and just throngs of girls chasing the Rock and Roll Express. And every time Ricky Morton hit the canvas, losing their stuff, if you will, as a wise man. Once said, but John, I don't know if you remember, but today's episode is brought to you by Meow Box. And as a special gift for our listeners, when you order your first Meow Box, when you use the code POWERTRIP10, all capital letters, POWERTRIP10, you get 10% off your first subscription. That's, of course, again, POWERTRIP10. And that's at MeowBox.com, John. I know you're a huge fan of Meow Box in your house with Little Lucy, but tell us, what does Little Lucy love the most about Meow Box? Oh, yes, I am definitely a huge fan, and it's funny because we're talking about tag teams. You said you were my partner. I'm thinking, no, I don't know about that. I think my tag team partner is probably Lucy, who's next to me, who looks very tired right now. She just uh, ate, so she's a little bit uh, tired. But uh, with her, it's interesting because, like I mentioned, she just ate. But she does have a special diet. She can only eat certain things. So with the Meow Box, something that they do that is so great, they do boxes that don't have edible items in it, which is awesome because they replace food and treats with more toys and surprises. And boy, does she love those toys. So that is one great thing about it. Another great thing about it is they have a program called One Box Can. With every Meow Box purchased, they donate a can of food to a shelter cat on your behalf, so that is always great, always rewarding. And not only that, but they also can personalize by hand your cat's name written on the inside of the box, and you know that all the edible items, if you do go that route, are made in the great old U.S. of A. or Canada, so you know where all your ingredients are coming from. So, again, that's Meow Box, and like Chad said, enter promo code POWERTRIP10 and receive 10% off your first subscription. Again, it's meowbox.com. Enter promo code POWERTRIP10 now. Now, let's get into some TMPT business. Subscribe to us on YouTube. 
please subscribe to us on iTunes as well. Leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. We just recently received about four or five uh, good to actually great feedback from uh, our fans. Don't stop there. We'd love to get more from you guys. You can also like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, at Pal and at Two Man Power Trip, and check out what JR had to say, good old Jim Ross had to say about us on Twitter. Quite an honor to be uh, pumped up like that by a Hall of Famer, a living legend, and the greatest announcer of all times. Check that out. JR's Barbecue, what he had to say about us, pretty awesome. Also, don't forget the website, tmptofwrestling.com. That is tmptofwrestling.com. And now, without any further ado, you got to enjoy this one. This is a good one. One of the greatest tag teams of all time, the Rock and Roll Express. You're going to hear some great stories about Dusty Rhodes and what he thought about the, the Rock and Roll Express. And maybe some jealousy in there. So, you did very interesting stuff about what he has to say about Dusty and himself and uh, Ricky Morton. And you're going to hear a lot of great stuff, topical stuff, about what he thinks about tag team wrestling nowadays. And I'll give you just a little hint for you. Listen, he's not happy with it. So without any further ado, one half of one of the greatest tag teams of all time, multi-time tag team champions everywhere they've went, this is the legend himself, Robert Gibson. Please enjoy. All right. Our guest tonight is a well-accomplished, legendary <coughs> tag team specialist. Alongside his tag team partner, Ricky Morton, they made up a team that not only could rock and roll, but they brought a new meaning to the phrase, hot tag. And it is with a great honor that we are welcomed by a former NWA Mid-Atlantic Tag Team Champion, an NWA Tag Team Champion, a Smoky Mountain Wrestling, USWA, Mid-South, CWA, and AWA Southern Tag Team Champion. He is a member of the NWA and Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame. He is the other half of the Rock and Roll Express, and that is Robert Gibson. Thank you for joining the two-man power trip for wrestling. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, man. Y'all guys doing all right? Doing good. Oh, we're doing we're doing awesome. I uh, actually had to catch my breath because I didn't even have enough air to get the rest of all the tag titles that you guys have won out. <laughs> because God knows that it's a hell of a number. But uh, with that being said, and like we said, we're happy that you're joining us tonight. Uh, kind of want to just start it off, not on a bummer, but you know, have to mention it. And it's the passing uh, of Dusty Rhodes last week. Uh, what are some of your memories of working with the Dream? And, uh, you know, we'll get to what he was doing right before he passed, but uh, share some of your memories uh, working with Dusty. Well, D- Dusty was pretty – he was fun to be around. He uh, did a lot for the business. He's an icon. Everybody knows. My hat's off to him. I remember matches when we had six-man tag matches. We'd get in the ring, and he would – he would say, brother, he just tie one of them bandanas around me. So we'd tie him around him. It was, it was pretty cool. Now, how was it working for Dusty, uh, you know, as a booker? And, uh, you know, was it uh, was, was he always to be fair with some of his uh, some of his booking ideas? And uh, was he one of the guys that, uh, since he was obviously still active, was he easy uh, to work with if there was something that you guys didn't really want to do? Well, we more or less did what we, did what we wanted to do. Uh, we had the ball and we ran with it, you know. Uh, I remember back in Bill Watts' days, Bill Watts made everybody wear suits. But we, we didn't have to wear the suits because we were rock and roll. <laughs> we got away with a lot of stuff. Definitely, definitely. And prior to, uh, to Dusty's passing, he was working with the WWE and the NXT developmental uh, I guess I, you can't even really say territory program or system, but uh, you yourself uh, are working with training the next stars of tomorrow. What is it that you and Dusty can bring to that next generation of stars that are learning and the kids that are uh, learning from a new generation of watching wrestling, but you guys have the, the cuts to the old school. What do, you, what do you teach these kids that are coming up today? The knowledge, how to go out there and work. It's not just about high spots. It's how to go out there and perform. 
and how uh, and Dusty actually uh, we had him on uh, honored to have him on right before he passed and he stressed knowing the history of the business is that something that you also stress to your guys? That's what I'm saying. The knowledge, yeah, the history of the business. Learned, never stop learning in this business. You know, Dusty told me before he passed, he, he appreciated what I did. You know, when I helped train Cody. Uh, right. Me and Al Snow. Me and Al Snow. But yeah, Cody was good and uh, went on to be really good. So Dusty, you- Dusty, thanks, thank, thank me for that. Now, where did you train Cody out of? Was was it OVW? OVW. What was yeah, your time like Snow. Yeah, what was your time like down there? It was good. We, when they when they when they went to Florida, they closed OVW up. So a lot of guys had the chance to work with it. Went to WWE, Spider, Kobe Kingston. I just enjoy like I, I got a training center here in Douglasville, Georgia. I just like I just love the business, like sharing it. Now, what is the name of the, the school that you're you're currently working with that you're training guys at? It's called All Pro Championship Wrestling Academy. APCW. And that's down there. You said in Georgia, Douglasville, Georgia. Now, are you the head trainer? Yes, sir. Nice. Very good. Now, with Ricky Morton having his own school and you having your own school, and, and you, you guys are definitely giving back to this, teaching the old school ways, what are your, right. opinions, what are your opinions on the rest yeah, of the Yeah, you say old school. You say, when you say old school, I guess, I, guess, I guess I'm teaching what I was taught. I guess that's even older school. <laughs> You look at it that way. Well, the stuff, stuff we did, you don't see it done no more. So actually, it's new. Like, for yeah. example, the, the flying head scissors I used to do. You don't see nobody doing it. Yeah, you're talking about the Frankensteiner. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So I got some good boys up here that are doing good. After they get through throwing up and uh, get through throwing up for a couple of days. And they're ready to go. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Now, if I can rewind a little bit um, to the beginning of your career, how did you get into the business, and who trained you for the business? I've been around the business since I was 10 years old. Uh, My brother Rick Gibson was ahead of me. He was like six years ahead of me, so he turned pro at 17, and he had the pleasure to work with a Ken Lucas, Bob Kelly, Bobby Shane, uh, them guys. I just followed in his footsteps. And uh, I turned pro at 17 myself. Now, where did he train you? Pensacola, Florida. Back then, we didn't have rings go. Back then, we didn't have rings to go train him. We went out in the ocean. We took slams, suplexes, all that in the ocean. Crazy. Wow. Yeah, wow, that's crazy. You had an ocean in the backyard, and that's where we learned ours. And when did you end up making your uh, pro wrestling debut? What year was it? Uh, 77. 1977. Do you remember where you debuted? Uh, New New Brockton, Alabama. It was back in the Gulf Coast days. That's right now outside when, of Pensacola. Now, when you started your career, obviously you would be, uh, go on to become a great, great tag team wrestler, but you actually started teaming with uh, your brother we just mentioned, uh, Ricky Gibson. What was it like teaming exactly. with your brother? It was uh, like magic. Everything that me and my brother did is what basically me and Ricky Morton did. He just took my brother's spot. We're you go back and look at tapes, you can see tapes of me and my brother. And the stuff we did, the same stuff me and Ricky did, and we just had a rock and roll gimmick. When 
you guys did the Rock and Roll Express. Obviously, we were talking about Ricky Morton and you, one of the greatest tag teams of all time. You ended up forming the Rock and Roll Express with the aforementioned Ricky. How did you guys go about forming the team of the Rock and Roll Express? Well, Jerry Well, we're going to call it the R&R Express. Ricky and Robert were both into rock and roll. We just named it Rock and Roll Express. And we went out and uh, just did our thing. People got behind us, and everywhere we was going was breaking records. Yeah, no doubt about some that. People say, some, some people say we were, like, we were like the Beatles in wrestling at the time. Yeah, you guys are probably the most over tag team, especially in that era. You guys right. are so you know, it's so popular. The girls scream for you. The guys want to be you. You know, it was crazy time to be a member of the Rock and Roll Express. Yeah, I, I just just a couple of things. I remember going to Lafayette, Louisiana, and we pull up, place sold out. I was back in the mid south days. And the news, Channel Five News, were there. They come, they come and talk to me. And Ricky says, "What's going on?" And I remember saying, "What do you mean, what's going on?" They said, "We've had never seen nothing like it. We've been coming out for days." And it's not toward the back. Who Ricky and Robert, the rock and roll friend. We're in the back end. People can't get tickets. It was Pop Carolina. I don't know if you ever heard of Rock Hill, South Carolina. Yep. They got a big amusement amusement park. They had a lookalike contest, and the winner got to go got to go eat dinner and amusement park with me and Ricky. So the limousine picks us all up. We go to the amusement park. We walk in this place, and the first ride we get on is a roller coaster. So me and Ricky and two little boys, we take off. About halfway through the ride, the ride just stops. It's like a movie. It just stops, and here comes security jumping over rails. I said, Ricky, Robert, we we hate to say this, but y'all have got to leave the park. Said, Everybody in this park is at the entrance and the exit. They took us back over back through these fences, and we had, we had to leave the park. We're shutting the park down. Hmm. That's wow. kind of crazy. <laughs> no better for the kids. They didn't, get, they didn't get a chance to enjoy it. <laughs> you guys are just too popular. That's crazy. Yeah, it was crazy. Crazy. Couldn't go nowhere. There's a lot of stories, of, you know, about how over you guys were and how popular you were, and you know the girls chasing you down, all the all the guys chasing you down for autographs, basically, just you know, just stories of like you said, almost like Beatlemania. Exactly. Now, now, is this true that the when you guys were doing shows and Jim Crockett, they had an A show and a B show, that you guys were the headliners of the B show and Rick Flair and Dusty were the headliners of the A show. Is it true that the B show was outdrawing the A show most of the time because you guys were the headliner? Yeah, it, it, it was. We, we were killing the A show. <laughs> we were killing the A show. Yeah. Do you have any stories of that time of maybe Player and Dusty maybe kind of being upset with you guys that you were outdrawing them and you were the quote unquote B show? I don't think I don't think they were upset with us. I just remember when Dusty went to. When they bought out Vern Gagne, they all went to Baltimore and left me and Ricky against, I think it was a Barbarian and somebody else for the main event in Charlotte. But they did like, I think they did, I hate to say, I think maybe 27000 and we did 110000 Wow. With, with, with nobody, just underneath cast. And I remember Dusty calling us in the office. He said, boys, there's two things you don't do in this in, 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 in this territory. What's that, Dusty? Sell out the Coliseum when I am not on the card. <laughs> so it was, it was crazy. We were, we were just over, over, over. 
Did you guys have any influences as far as, you know, like the, you guys uh, with the dress, with the way you dress, you know, the bandanas, the jackets and stuff. Did you have any uh, specific influences on how you guys dressed? Yeah, we, we, we just, back then, we just, uh, when we first started, we just got some rock and roll magazines and just see how the rock and rollers were dressing. We just did our own. Sold so many bandanas, I should have got a part of the bandana business. <laughs> Did you get any royalties or anything, or, or were you guys kind of screwed in, in a way that you weren't getting uh, merchandise money, kind of like they, you should have been? They, they kept us so busy. They kept us so busy. We didn't have, didn't have time to think what was going on. We were in different different towns every night, flying, flying every day. It was nine months without a day off. Uh, yeah, we got screwed out of a lot of merchandise money. There's a lot of stories about uh, Crockett at that time, especially with because they were obviously the number one merchandise sellers and you know, probably the most popular um, act that they had in JCP at the time. Now, is it true the story about low payoffs as well? Uh, well, she should have made more than what we did. But uh, you know, when we first went there, they said that the territory was down. I never saw a bad house when I was there. I know we broke records everywhere we went. Records that Crockett Promotion had in 50 years, we broke it the first weekend. <laughs> it wow. was crazy. Why did like Raleigh, North Carolina, the first night there was 48,000. And we broke the record that Rick Flair and Black Jack Mulligan had. They had 27,000 there. And our first night, we did 48. And Dusty had another meeting because that's like Babe Ruth. That record would never be broken. But two weeks later, back in the Dorton Arena in Raleigh, North Carolina, we, we didn't only break that record. We took it from 48 to 56,000. And then uh, after that, after that, the final gate we got there was 72,000. So wow. from, a record, from a record that was 27,000 to, to 72,000, before you knew it, Crockett was buying jet planes, and he bought a big, a big, another big plane. Then, well, then it come time about it. Then it come time when we left, and the territory just faded away. Hmm. You would think that uh, they would be a little bit more receptive to giving the guys like Ricky Morton and yourself, the Rock and Roll Express, that are making the money. For the company, you figure that they would uh, treat them better as far as uh, merchandise money, as far as payoffs, and, and things of that nature. Yeah. If you get a chance to get one of them tapes to Rock and Roll Express, uh, it tells a lot, of, a lot of it in there. Are you talking about the Michael Elliott uh, documentary, Rock and Roll Never Dies? Yes. Yeah, the documentary. Yes. yes. Great, great documentary. If anybody out there hasn't seen it, I would highly suggest getting it. I actually was a contributor on that yes. project and was so excited to see, you know, it reach its goal and get out there and stuff. Cause that is one of the best DVDs I've ever seen put out there. And if anyone out there didn't like the Rock and Roll Express before, or if you liked them a little bit, you'll like them even more. This thing is just amazing. Right. And we still go out there, we're still double drop kicking, so it's, it's fine. <laughs> I'm doing it as long as a good man upstairs will let me. Did you enjoy working on that uh, the DVD project, the documentary with Michael Elliott? Yeah, Mike's a pretty good guy. I watched it and it brought a tear to my eye. I just hear the conversations from the other guys, what they went through. It was pretty cool. Did you feel like that story needed to be told? Because, you know, the WWE's kind of in their own world um, with not really respecting the true legends and stuff, but did you feel like that DVD had to be made or that documentary had to be put out there because, you know, the Rock and Roll Express kind of weren't being, um, you know, respected otherwise by, by WWE and, uh, right. Uh, I got nothing bad to say about the WWE. I got nothing bad to say about them, but it is a good DVD. Yeah, I really felt like that story definitely I felt like it had to be told. You you guys had such an impact on the business and you guys were so popular and so big that a documentary was definitely needed. Well, thank you, man. Appreciate it. Yeah. Now, if I could, I just want to go back to uh, 
JCP and the NWA for a little bit. I just wanted to mention, of course, when you talk about the Rock and Roll Express, you cannot not mention Jim Cornette and the Midnight Express. What was it like working with those guys? It was uh, chemistry, man. It was unreal. I could probably wrestle on blind photos. It was chemistry. Do you have any good stories of working with guys together that can work? Huh? Do you have any good stories of working with them? Oh, oh yeah. I used to love the scalpel matches. I'd get up there and shake it. Bobby and Dennis would scream at me. Stop. Ricky Morton screaming, stop. They're scared of heights. I was up there like a crazy man. I'm jumping around and swinging. They're going to kill us. <laughs> it was fun. Yeah, like you said, there was four, basically, even if you have Stan Lane or Dennis Tundra, you know, you can switch them out, but just four amazing workers going in there and then adding in Cornette to the mix made it even cooler. Yeah. Yeah, either way you put them, they're all, they're all good. You don't see that today. You don't have good tag teams today. They're missing. Rationalists missing tag teams. Yeah, do you feel like they need to go back in, in a little bit and focus in on? Yes, I do. I really do. There's nobody to teach them. There's nobody to teach them. It's a lot, it's a lot different today. It's, uh, I guess it's showbiz. Back then, you did grind a little bit. Yeah. Yep. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. And I just wanted to touch on this again because we were talking about obviously the Midnight Express and how awesome that shoot is. I mean, you guys shooted for years, Mid Atlantic, uh, Mid South, JCP, obviously the NWA, uh, even a little in WCW. I mean, you guys shooted for years and years. It's probably one of the greatest, if not the greatest, feuds of all time, but it's definitely the greatest tag team feud of all time. Wow. Yes. People say they don't watch a good wrestling tag team. They go to the 80s and watch it. So, pretty cool. Now, you had mentioned that the Skywalkers match, the uh, the scaffold match, and you said you had fun doing it, obviously. But, uh, and you know, the other guys were a little scared. But when they originally pitched the idea of the match to you guys, what was the reaction? Uh, no. <laughs> I, I, I didn't say no, because like I said, I, I ain't scared of heights, but yeah, it was no, I ain't going up there. And back then, they just threw a thing together, and it was kind of dangerous. And if you watch that one scaffold match, I'm in Chicago, and I hit, I think I hit Dennis over the head with that iron rail up top. That's because when I fell up against the rail, it wasn't hooked. And it opened up. I almost fell out. I almost fell to the crowd. Oh my god! I slapped, and that rod. If you ever see a tape, that rod. I slapped, when I hit it, it fell out, and I grabbed it and slung it back. When I did it, it took my left index finger and the fingernail off, and I was pissed. And blood was going everywhere, and I was hitting dinners with that damn rod. But I was lucky at it and fall out there in the third row somewhere. Um, just uh, before we let you go, I, I just uh, just wanted to you know wind down and just get into um, basically just one more question for you. What would you say is the okay. lasting legacy on the business for Robert Gibson and the Rock and Roll Express? Uh, what would be the last thing on what now? Say it again. Your lasting legacy. What would you say the lasting legacy on the wrestling business is for the Rock and Roll Express? I like people to realize that we give them all we had, and we always put them first. We never mind to be number number two, and it was an honor to to, to uh, put enjoyment in people's lives. That's what I get today. Everywhere we go, I have people come to me all the time and say, "Thanks for the memories." That's good. Definitely, and also, where can we find anything Robert Gibson if we want to? Check out you and the Rock and Roll Express. Uh, uh, I'm on I'm on Facebook every now and then, and uh, All Pro Championship Wrestling Academy. You can see where I'm at, where I'm going. And also, of course, 
check out Michael Elliott's documentary on the Rock and Roll Express. Rock and Roll Never Dies. It's a great documentary, and it's just awesome stuff. And I, I really feel like it's a story that needed to be told because Robert Gibson and Ricky Morton, the Rock and Roll Express, are probably the greatest tag team, if not one of the greatest tag teams of all time. And it's been truly an honor to have you on the show today, Mr. Gibson. I really appreciate your time. Well, I appreciate it. It seems like I heard that the other night. That's what Jerry Lawler said. Basically, basically the same thing you just said. But I appreciate it, guys. Thank you. <laughs> 